We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you'll open your Bibles there. As we continue in our study through the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. You know, and as we get into it today, we are currently focused on the events surrounding David and Goliath. And the lessons that this teaches us about overcoming, about giant killing, about living the victorious Christian life. Now, in going through this, what we have established so far is that giants are a fact. They are a fact of life, and anybody who has ever struggled with habitual sin or perhaps a prodigal son or daughter or maybe dealt with uh, you know, issues of depression or, or you know, you've lost a job or you're struggling with bills or whatever the case may be, we know that giants are indeed a fact of life. There's the giant that you're facing today, or there's the giant that you're going to be facing tomorrow, or there's the giant that maybe you faced last week, uh, but we know that giants are real, and, uh, and that there's more of them coming every single day. And so, considering that, what we, what we understand is that, yes, we've all encountered giants, and yes, we all have to deal with them. And in dealing with our giants, what we looked at uh, so far is that, first of all, giants have to be faced. Uh, a lot of people, the way they deal with their giant is they stick their head in the sand. They, you know, find a happy place, and they, they just want to run uh, from giants. And we learn, no, listen, if you're going to face a giant, you have to do that. You have to face the giant. And in facing the giant, the next thing you need to understand is that the, the giants must not be feared. That's the enemy's main tactic. He wants to get you to be afraid, be very, very afraid. And if he can get you back on your heels, and if he can get you running, and if he can get you to be fearful, well, then he's won the battle before it's ever really started. And so we must not fear the giant. We saw that in order to defeat our giants, that we have to focus on God. And we looked at how Saul and the Israelites, they weren't focused on God. They were focused on Goliath. Their compass was set to Goliath. They, 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 they took the time of day by, hey, it's Goliath kind of thing. And, and they're, they're, all they do is focus on the enemy. And, and we saw, no, listen, if we're going to defeat our giants, we need to focus on the Lord. That's what David did. He said, listen, you, you know, uh, this guy, Saul told him, you can't take this guy. He's a, he's a fighting man from his youth, and you just, you're just a kid. And, he, and, and David said, no, no, listen, my focus is on God. When I was a boy, tending my father's sheep, and the lion or the bear came and attacked, I fought, I overcame them uh, by the power of God. God delivered me, and he'll deliver me again from, from this giant. And so in order to defeat our giants, we have to focus on God, not on the giant. And, and we, we saw also that uh, as our focus remains on God, then we then have to engage in the fight. That, that there reaches a point in time, yes, we have to have faith, but at a point in time, your faith has to become fact. Your faith has to be lived out. You have to engage your faith. It's been said that when a farmer prays uh, for crops, that he says amen uh, with, with a plow, you know? And so there is that, that God's part and there is our part. Well, last week, as we continued studying this, we focused on the importance of pressing the attack. Many Christians, they, they will, they'll defeat a giant perhaps, uh, but then what they do is they take their foot off the gas and they begin to have victory in their lives. We'll have Christians that will come to church and, and they'll have you know, some breakthroughs and some victories and they'll begin to take the steps that they need to, st- to, to take to press the attack. They'll you know, begin going to Bible study. They'll get their kids involved in Awana or in Bible study in some capacity on a regular basis and they begin to grow in the relationship with the Lord. And then what happens is that they think, huh, I'm good. You know, things are, my life is a lot better than it, than it used to be. It's kind of like, you know, you go to the doctor and you're sick and he prescribes antibiotics and you start taking them. And then you stop taking the antibiotics, you know, prematurely because you feel better. And what happens all the time, why do the doctors tell you you have to take the antibiotic until it's pre- the pres- course of, prescribed course is done? Is because if you stop taking it prematurely, the bug can revive and it becomes drug resistant. This is a big reason why we have drug resistant bacteria today. Because, you know, the over prescribing of antibiotics and the undertaking, the following through and the prescription. Same thing with this follow through with God. We, we can't take our foot off the gas. And so Christians, they start to string a couple of victories together. 
And then what do they do? They take their foot off the gas, and they're shocked and dismayed when the enemy comes and, and you know, revives and, and, and counterattacks. And so we saw that, hey, listen, we need to press the attack. And we saw that, you know, as David pressed the attack, that the enemy fled. And again, that's precisely when people will back off, uh, but it's precisely when we must continue to press the attack. We saw also that as David pressed the attack, that the people followed. Like Paul, God's looking for Christians who will say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. God is looking for that. And we saw that in David, he was a man who pressed the attack. And because he pressed the attack, then now he could be used by God to influence a a nation, entire nation that otherwise was not engaging in the fight. They They were afraid. They were fearful. They were quaking in their boots. And so when they saw David engage the giant and they saw David press the attack, they were emboldened to themselves become now empowered and for themselves to press the attack and for themselves to start walking in victory. And that's what God is looking at for, for you and for me. He's looking at the, the Bible says he, he, he searches his, his eyes, he goes to and fro, looking for those who show themselves faithful to him. And, and so God's looking for faithful men and women who are going to press the attack. And so as David pressed the attack, the people followed. And the result we saw was that David gained favor with Saul and he gained a friendship uh, with Jonathan and we expanded on that and looked at the implications of that and the needfulness of, hey, leaders are looking for people that are faithful uh, and there's a very huge need for that. Uh, the, the Lord, uh, speaking through the Apostle Paul, would command young Pastor Timothy that, you know, he needed to find, hey, the things that you've heard and seen in me, you need to commit these to faithful men who are going to be able to teach others also, 2 Timothy 2 too. And so this is, uh, this is what the church is built upon. It's so important that we're going to, to, to be those type of leaders, those type of people in our Christian life that when we follow the Lord and trust the Lord and defeat a giant and press the attack, that he can use us to to minister to other people and to cause them to be strengthened. Leaders are always looking for those kind of men. And so as David pressed the attack, uh, man, he found favor with Saul. He found favor with the leadership of Israel there and a friendship with Jonathan, just a kindred heart. A guy could say, hey, man, here's a guy who loves the Lord like I love the Lord. Here's a guy who's sold out for following the Lord like I want to be sold out for following the Lord. And there's just a very huge need for that, for us as Christian men and women, that we need to have those kind of friendships that, that are building us up in our faith. We're supposed to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's so important that we have those friends who will build us up, who will encourage us, and we likewise can build them up. Uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of, of his friend. And so this is, this is the benefits that we get, and, and these are all benefits from not only being afraid to, to, or being unafraid to fight our giants, but also being unafraid to press the attack. Well, that's the ground that we've covered so far, and as we continue today, our focus is on the testing and trials which God prescribes in the making of a man or woman of God. The testing and trials that God prescribes. It's been said that our greatest victories all often lead to our greatest trials. Our greatest victories often lead to our greatest trials. And this is certainly true here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, where now David has had this huge victory. He's been faithful to press the attack. And what we see now is that David has crossed the threshold. And now what he's entered into is a 10-year period of trial. Two things that you don't like to have coupled together. Nobody likes the word trial, and when you couple it with 10 years, you do not like that at all. I don't like that. 10-year trial. You know, I like, you know, 10-year free mortgage. Yeah, great, you know. 10-year whatever, free subscription too. But you've just won a a free subscription to a 10-year period of trial. Wait, no. Yes, and that's what happens is that oftentimes, man, our greatest victories lead to our greatest trials. Why? Because God's refining us. The big idea today is that trials and tests are actually prescribed by God. You might just want to jot that down. Trials and tests are prescribed by God. We're going to to examine that today. Um, 
Proverbs 17.3 says this, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. The Lord tests the hearts. That word tests, uh, literally what it means, it means to try or to prove, and it speaks of a refining process. And, uh, you know, Proverbs uh, 17.3, written by, by Solomon, the son of David, you think that maybe he learned a little bit from his father about this refining process? I guarantee you uh, that he did. So we're going to look at the refining process. We'll pick it up, uh, chapter 18, verse 5, where we left off, and we read, So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. Um, and Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, first thing to notice in God's refining process in the life of David, my first point, is that David was tested and tried in faithfulness. He was tested and tried in faithfulness. Now, this has been a character trait of David's from the beginning. I mean, just from the very beginning when Samuel showed up to, to go to the, to the house of Jesse, David's father, to anoint from one of his sons the future king of Israel, where did they find David? Well, they found David being faithful to keep and tend his father's sheep out in the field. That was a lowly, despised job. And, and it showed a lot about his, what, what his father thought of him that he would actually have one of his sons tending the sheep. This, this, they, shepherds were, were considered to be thieves and outcasts, and they were not highly regarded in the nation of Israel. And so a man would have his son tend his sheep. We get an insight into, you know, David's household and the raising and all and what his dad kind of thought of him. But you know what? David was faithful. He kept his father's sheep. He, 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 sheep. He's tended his father's sheep. And even after... Samuel showed up in his life even after Samuel would anoint him as the future king of Israel. You might think, you know, if, if you've got, you know, a lousy job out in the mud with these stinky, stubborn, stupid sheep that, that you know, you get promoted, you're like, I am out of here, man. Because in case you guys didn't get the memo, I'm the future king. So, you know, adios kind of thing. David didn't do that. He, even after he was anointed as king, he remained faithfully tending his father's sheep. Even to the point where now, you know, the Israelites, they're in battle. Three of his brothers are in the Israeli army. Man, and they're, you know, they're going to engage in, to fight the battle. The place where every man wants to be. You know, it's like, I don't want to sit home doing this lame stuff. I want to go do the prestigious stuff, man. I want to go to war. And, and no, he still remains faithful. His father's like, hey, you know, why don't you take, you know, some supplies to, to everybody? You know, to, to, to the real men, your real brothers, real men who are there on the battle, hey, why don't you play supply chief there and go take them, you know, some cheese and, and, and all. He's like, what a cheesy job, right? No, that's not his response. He's faithful. He goes, he takes the cheese, he's just faithful to do everything his dad told him to do, and the text makes it very clear and takes, goes to, to, to the lengths to point out to us that, hey, listen, David even considered his sheep before he went. He found somebody to watch and tend the sheep to make sure that they were taken care of. Faithfulness. It's been a part of his makeup from the very beginning. And of course, when he got there and he saw Goliath and Goliath screaming his, his blasphemies and all, that, that, that he was just the rage, the indignant rage in his heart for how can you defile the armies of the living God? And then David was faithful to engage Goliath as the opportunity would present itself. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Now, here now again, even though he's anointed king, what is he faithful to do? He's faithful to serve the existing king, Saul. See, God has taken his hand off of Saul. He's removed the spirit from Saul. He's given his spirit to David. But yet, Saul is still occupying that position, uh, that, that occupying the throne and the, the position as, as king. And David doesn't take it upon himself to say, hey, dude, you know, you didn't get the memo, but let me inform you. You're out, I'm in, move over. You're sitting in my chair, kind of thing. He doesn't do that. 
No, what we read here is that David remained faithful. He remained faithful even to the point of serving Saul. And the Bible makes it clear for you and me that our faithfulness will be tested and that it will be tried. Just as David's faithfulness is tested, has been tested, and is going to be tested and tried, same is true for you and for me. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 25. Pick it up in verse 14. Jesus telling a parable. Parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And uh, here Jesus says, Matthew 25 beginning in verse 14, For the, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability. That's important. Again, he's telling us an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and what this means, we have to read this with the, with the understanding, this applies to you and me as well. What this means is that God has given to each one of us talents. Now, in this culture, a talent, it was a, it was a unit of measure. It, it referred to money. And he gave different amounts of money to each person. For us, the understanding, it, it's fortunate that the word for money is talent because that's, that's really the idea for us today is that God has gifted each one of us with different talents and varying degrees of talent according to our ability. Some people have r- remarkable ability. I mean, I think of, you know, Lisa sing- singing this morning and, 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 you know, the gentleman I'm sitting next to leans over to me. He's like, she's got an incredible voice. I'm like, yeah, and I'm thinking consciously, you know, if I were up singing. You know, we had, we had choir practice that started for our Easter service. By the way, this is just an aside. You can edit this out. Uh, we need men for the choir still, so uh, man up, guys. Uh, there's a choir practice today, 2 o'clock, and you can get in on that, all right? But we had a choir practice this week, and it was going tremendous. And I went there, my wife's singing in the choir, and I just went down just to talk to everybody and encourage them and really just to check it out. And it was awesome, and I was loving it. And they're like, Pastor Ted, we need another man to sing. I'm like, you do not want me to sing, buddy. Trust me, man. I do not have that talent. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, man. And, and so, but you men that can, you should... Quit being a chicken and get on the, the choir, okay? So, so, you know, God has gifted every one of us, and each one of us has different abilities. Some of you have five talents. You know, some of you have, have lesser talents. But the thing is, is that, and it's not literal, it's just God's given some more, he's given some less. And we need to be faithful with the talent that he's given to us. And so he says, uh, continuing, um, He gave each one according to his ability, verse 15, and immediately he went on a journey. Verse 16, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and he hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came. And he settled accounts with them. Over and over again, we see this theme in the Bible that, that there's going to come a day of reckoning for us. We're all going to stand before God and give an account of our lives. And we looked at this, you know, just several uh, weeks ago where, you know, first message of the new year, I talked to you about, you know, the fact that it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And so each one of us has an appointed time of death. And each one of us, it's appointed to judgment. And there's two different types of judgment that the Bible speaks about. If you are an unbeliever, if you've rejected Jesus Christ, then you are are going to go to the great white throne judgment where you're going to be judged according to your works. Nobody wants to be judged according to their works. People say that they do, but the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It's speaking of eternal death. 
Not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. So if you say, hey, I want, I, I'm a good guy. I live according to the Ten Commandments. How do you know you're going to heaven? Well, because I haven't killed anybody and because I'm basically a good guy. God will judge you according to your works if that's what you want and you will be found wanting and your eternal judgment will be an eternity in hell separated from God. That's not God's desire. He gave you Jesus Christ so that you would trust him because he doesn't want you to go to hell. But if you step over Jesus and you reject Jesus, then he has no other choice but to give you what you've, what you've asked for. So if you ask to be a judge according to your works, you will be found wanting. And that's, that's just the reality. Now for the rest of us, those of us that have trusted our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, we also will face judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be judged according to your works. Rather, your works are going to be judged as far as reward goes. And that's a little confusing. I'll just clear it right up. We're not talking about salvation. That's been settled. By grace, you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So so you're in. That's not what's being settled at, at the judgment seat of Christ. You're in. What's being settled is what is your reward in heaven going to be? And, and, and so, so that's, that's the issue there. So, so what happens here, what we just read, is that after a long time, the Lord comes and these servants face judgment. And we just need to understand, hey, the Lord is coming. We continue, verse 20, so he who had received five talents... He came and he brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good, faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he also who had received two talents came and he said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good, faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. You got to understand two things about that verse right there. First of all, when he calls him a hard man, he doesn't mean that, that he's, he's hard in the sense of, of being, you know, um, overbearing and angry and, and, you know, that kind of hard. No, he's hard because he's exacting. You will give an account for your life. And, and he will, with, you know, metaphorically speaking, calculator and pencil in hand, He will have you account for every penny of your life in regards to the talents that he's given to you and how faithful have you been. So I knew you to be a hard servant means, look, I knew you. Nothing gets by you. You you see everything. You know everything. I can't just, you know, brush brush it under the rug. You ask me a question, I'm like, you're just going to let it go kind of thing. So, so that's the idea, and he says, and, and, and when he says that, you know, you, you're, you're a hard man, you're an, you're an exacting man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed, here's the idea, God has entrusted talents to you because he wants you to, to do work for the kingdom of God. We, we read in the book of Acts, there right out the gate, the author says, in my former work, the gospel of Luke... I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. The implication is that Jesus' work continues. It didn't didn't conclude with his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Jesus continues to work on the earth today. He works through you and through me as we're faithfully obedient. And this is what it means here when he says, I knew you to be a hard man, an an exacting man, uh, you know, uh, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Because why? Because he reaps where you have sown and he reaps where you have scattered seed. Which begs the question, are you sowing? Have you scattered seed? How faithful have, have you been? And he said, and I was afraid, verse 25, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and he said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. 
You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. In other words, you knew that, that I gave you something that I wanted you to put to work so that I could ben- reap the benefits of your work. Therefore, take the talent from him, verse 28. I'm sorry. Uh, so, verse 27, you, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. In other words, you should have at least done the least that you could have done with it. At least you could have uh, stuck it in the bank and, and got your measly you know, 1% interest on it, whatever it is. You could have at least done that. Therefore, verse 28, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Listen, here's here's the deal. The Bible makes it clear that your faithfulness will be tested and it will be tried. Your faithfulness will be tested and it will be tried. Paul said this to the Corinthians, he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And that word found, the implication is, it it means to, to find by inquiry, examination, scrutiny, observation, to be found by practice and experience. In other words, to be found by testing and trial. That's what it means. Now understand this. The testing isn't so much for God to determine your faithfulness, it's for God to develop your faithfulness. It's not for God to determine, hey, let's see whether or not Karen was faithful. No, it's, hey, let me develop Karen's faithfulness, right? And so he puts you through testing and through trial. Notice, and notice here in, in Matthew's gospel, we're still here in, in, in chapter 25, notice in verse 29 there, God's motive Behind your testing and your trial, his trying to make you faithful, you see it right there, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance. This is not, hey, God wants to bless you, God wants to give you a Cadillac and a Rolls Royce. This isn't the idea. What it means specifically is that what God wants to do is that he wants to trust you with more. He gives you an opportunity to bear eternal fruit for the kingdom of God. There are very precious few things in life that you can do that will last forever. But if you use the gifts that God has given to you in service to Him, you will do things that will last forever. If you have the opportunity, those of you who have shared your faith, and it's frightening, right? The first time you step out and share your faith, But have you ever led somebody to Jesus Christ? And you led them in a prayer? I remember the first person I ever led to Jesus Christ. I mean, I almost broke into tears because I'm thinking and I'm tripping on this thought like, I just led that person to Jesus Christ. They were going to hell and now they're going to heaven. They just went from death to eternal life. It's the most amazing thing in the world. When I was a paramedic, we would go and we would treat people, you know, and, and, and you know, there were calls where literally someone was, was dead and your intervention brought them back to life. It was such a great feeling. You would leave, you know, the, the one guy, he was choking and the guy, you know, he was dead. And, and you know, we, we got the, 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 the laryngoscope out and, you know, the, 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 the McGill forceps there and I pulled out, you know, this hunk of meat and all of a sudden... <gasps> And this blue guy just now, you know, turns, his his color comes back to his faith and in tears, just hugging on us. Thank you for saving my life. Thank you for saving my life. And the feeling that, I mean, you get a lump in your throat, you're like, I really did just save that guy's life. And, and, And you're thinking, wow, thank you, Lord. But what did I do? I just saved his life temporarily. Listen, when you lead somebody to Christ, when your works are, when God uses you, in a way, and those of you that have used by God, you know that have been used by God, you know the feeling. You, you, God wants, and He wants to do. It's like, hey, I want you to be faithful, and as you're faithful, I'll let you be faithful and more. Can you imagine being Greg Laurie and waking up in the morning to, at, at the morning after the Harvest Crusade, going, you know, ten thousand people gave their lives to Jesus Christ last night. I mean, it's just got to be tears of joy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. 
So the testing isn't for God to determine your faithfulness. It's for him to develop your faithfulness because he wants to give you more. He wants to do more in and through your life. Paul told the Ephesians, he says, as believers, you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you are fellow citizens with the saints. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. You're members, he said, of God's household. Right? You get to call God dad. Not only that, you're predestined according to the purpose of God to good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In other words, God has already mapped out in your life predetermined invitations that you're going to have through being faithful with the gifts and the talents that he's given to you to bring him glory and honor. He's already prescribed works that you can be involved in. And so, so this is an, an, an amazing thing. As we're faithful in little, it's God's intention to promote us to increasing degrees of faithfulness. Now, just like every promotion, and here's what I want you to understand, just like every promotion, trials and testings have to precede the promotion. You get it? Every promotion has to be preceded by trials and testing. I'll give you an example. You take a Navy SEAL or you take an Army Ranger, right? Who are these men who who become Navy SEALs or an Army Ranger? Well, they're already enlisted. These are people that have already been through basic training. Many of them have already been through combat. Okay, and so what happens? Do they just get to, to go to the front of the line? Do they just sort of, you know, sweep the requirements under the rug and go, oh, okay, you know, you've already been tested and tried going through basic training, and so now, yeah, okay, here you go. You can be a Navy SEAL. No, they've been tested and they've been tried, and what happens is before they can be promoted, they're going to be tested and tried again. And this is the thing that you have to understand as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to be tested and tried. And it's not a one and done kind of thing. That your whole life is going to be testing and trials. And as you promote and as God finds you faithful, you're going to be tested and tried again. Why? Because he wants to promote you so that you can bear more fruit. And so we need to understand this because a lot of time we go through testing and trials and we're like, oh, no, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? A lot of times you didn't do anything wrong. You did something right. And God just, you're like, thanks a lot, Pastor Dad. No, this is a Christian life. And, and as we grow, listen, and it begs the question, maybe you just jot it down if you're taking notes, am I being faithful? Or maybe you write down, am I'm being tested in my faithfulness. And that's the case here. Because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's been said, you, you know if you're a servant of God by how re- you react when you're treated like one. Let me say that again, because that's a good quote. You know if you are a servant of God by how you react when you're treated like one. See, a lot of people, they'll, you know, they'll be treated like a servant, and, they, and they, they'll take offense at some point, they're, you know, from time to time, we have people that serve here at the church. And admittedly, if I have to admit anything, admit anything, it's that I don't say thank you enough to those that serve. You know, if you serve here, thank you so much. But, but, but I almost do it on purpose. And the reason I almost do it on purpose is because the question is, well, who are you doing it for? I've had people before, they've come up to me, they're like, you know, nobody said thank you. I'm like, well, who, who are you doing it for? Because if you're doing it for me or if you're doing it for anybody else, then go home. Because we're here to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We do it for him. We do it to bring him glory and honor. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus said this in Luke's gospel. He said, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. And then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. This is Jesus, you know, lamb, you know, carrying peace with Jesus, you know, the picture. Jesus is like, quit crying. 
You're a servant of God, serve him, you know, kind of thing. This is, this is the attitude here. And, 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 and what we see in our text is that David did his duty. He was faithful tending sheep, he was faithful taking direction from his father, and he was faithful obeying Saul's orders. And as we continue, the testing of his faithfulness has only just begun, man. It's only just begun. Not, not only was David tested and tried in his faithfulness, but notice the second point, David was tested and tried with fans. He was tested and tried with fans. Uh, verse 6, as we continue, for Samuel chapter 18. Now it had happened, as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And so the women sang as they danced, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, when women sing your name in the streets, you're popular, right? And, and notice, it happened in all the cities of, of Israel. I mean, the number one song on Israeli radio was Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands, Right? And so, you know, here's the thing. These girls, they're wearing David t-shirts. You know, they got David and Goliath tour, 1020 BC, you know. They know the lyrics to all his songs, right? They're just, they're, they're, they're swooning there. They, 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 not only do they know the words to all his songs, they're like, they're sneaking into his hotel room, the whole bit, right? I mean, these, these chicks are all about David, you know. And, and, and so, popularity, man, I'll tell you. When, when my son was in, was in Hollywood, his agent gave him one piece of advice. She said, hey, let me give you one piece of advice. You're never as bad as they say you are, but you're never as good as they say you are. And that's brilliant advice. Because a lot of people, a lot of the actors that Scotty worked with, they didn't get that memo. They, they started off slow and humble, and then all of a sudden, their song's on the radio. People know who they are, whatever the case may be. And now, man... They just have this, this proud, arrogant, entitled, sort of worship me kind of attitude. And it happens, man. They, they just believe their, their, the press clippings. And it totally went to their heads. We used to tell Scotty, listen, no, no, no. You will wait in line for your food like everybody else. You, you, will, you will, at the end of the day, you'll put your wardrobe back on the hanger for, for the people that work in wardrobe. They're not your maid. You're not going to just throw it on the floor. You know, you're going to, hey, we live in Menifee, okay? And this is where you're, this is, this is who you are, man. Your friends are in Menifee, your life is in Menifee, you know. This is, this is, this is it. And, and now think about it from David's perspective here. I mean, seriously, think about David. He's never received this kind of acclamation in his life. What has David received? Hey, shut up and get out there with the sheep. You know, his brother's hassling him. I know, well, you're, you're, you're just, where'd you leave those few sheep that you're tending, David? Right? He's never had any sort of accolades like this in his life. And now women are falling over themselves, singing, praising his name. The potential's there, isn't it? The potential is there, and the enemy is shrewd. If he can't get you through, through intimidation, if he can't get you through fear, if he can't get you through somebody condemning you, well, then he'll switch his tactic. What will he do? Well, he'll get you through somebody praising you. And I'm always shocked and amazed. You know, people who, who, you know, godly men, godly women, they're, they're faithful servants, and all of a sudden, they'll have some success, and where, you know, humility and faithfulness and self-sacrificing once reigned in their lives, what happens? Now they're prideful, they're entitled, they're compromising in their walks. And, and what did it? It wasn't condemnation of the enemy. It was the compliments of their friends. It was the compliments of their friends. And, they, and that's not to say that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can't encourage one another. But man, it's this idea of, hey, you know, the, the, the compliments and the, the man, you're going to be tested and tried. If you, if you step out to serve the Lord, now people, people will, you know, they'll, they'll put you on a pedestal if you'll let them. And I'm always so thankful for people who come up and, and they'll, they'll share with me, oh man, I, I love it when people, 
you know, share with me how God has spoken to them when I'm teaching, whatever the case may be. And I always, I always respond with, thank you so much for the encouragement. I'm encouraged by them sharing what God has done because it's just that humbling thing. God, you've done a work in their lives. Thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that, you know? And that's a healthy way for us to get. What's unhealthy for us to get is we hear that kind of thing and we go, ha, aren't I great? Isn't it awesome? you know, kind of thing. And, and this is what will come. If you're faithful to use the gifts and talents God has given to you, there will be praise in the offering and you gotta know how to handle that, that, that praise that comes in the offering. Proverbs twenty seven twenty one says this, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise that he receives. Who wrote that? David, did he know what he was writing about? Absolutely, and it is a testing. It most certainly is a testing. Turn to Acts chapter 3 real quick. We see here in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're going up to, uh, to prayer. And uh, as they're going up to prayer, they, uh, they pass by this cat, and he's just this, he's, he's this lame man. He's been lame from his birth. And, uh, and so fixing his eyes on him, we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, with John, Peter said, look at us. And so they gave him his attention. He expected to receive something from him, right? And what happens? Peter says in verse 6, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy is instantly healed. He's leaping, he's jumping. It would have been an amazing sight to see. And everybody's losing their mind over this thing. Everybody's like, what on earth has just happened? And so we skip to verse 11. It says, and now as the lame man who was healed, he held on to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed, right? They, they, this is the, the, they're just amazed. And we continue, and it says, verse 12, so when Peter saw it, what was the it that Peter saw? He saw the reaction of the people. He saw the reaction of the people, and we know that part of that reaction of the people was that they were dealing with Peter and John like they were, you know, some sort of miracle God workers. You know, you're like, you guys are incredible, you know, kind of thing. You guys just did this. You know, the, the, the giving them attributing to them and their inherent power and whatever it was, the, this guy's raising from the dead. And, he, and so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, verse 12, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look, and this is how we know that they're thinking that he did it because he says it, why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk Skip down to verse 16. Peter is quick to say, listen, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Jesus, or Peter does not receive the praise of the people. Not for a second will he, give the, will he receive their praise. He says, let's be clear. It's Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ who has made this man well. Billy Graham says there's three things you never mess with. You don't mess with God's women, you don't mess with God's money, and you don't mess with God's glory. You give him the glory, you give him the praise, you give him the worship. Peter wasn't motivated by the praise of people, but praising God through obedience. David Guzik said this, he said, because of what God built in him, David, out of the shepherd's field, David could live his life more for the Lord than for people. It wasn't that David didn't care about people or what they thought, but he could put the opinion of man in the right perspective because he cared more about the opinions of God. This is exactly what we see Peter doing here in, in the book of Acts. It's exactly the heart that David demonstrated and it begs a question for us there. For us, we need to take a walk with, hey, look, how about me? Do I do what I do for the praise of men or do I do, do, I do what I do for the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ? And you will be tempted in that way if you're an obedient Christian. Well, finally, not only was David tested and tried in faithfulness, 
Not only was he tested and tried by fans, but thirdly and finally today we're going to look at David was tested and tried by his foes. He was tested and tried by foes. Look at verse 8 for Samuel chapter 18. It says, then Saul was very angry. Why was Saul angry? Well, because all the women are like, David's awesome. He's killed his ten thousands and Saul has killed thousands, right? So Saul's mad. He was very angry. And the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me, they've ascribed only thousands. And now what more can he have but the kingdom? What, what, what more is his but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day forward. You, you know the eyeing. He gave him the, the evil eye, man. And, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. Now, now the translation prophesied is an unfortunate one because the Hebrew word that's used here, it can be translated prophesied. But in this instance, it can also be uh, described or, or interpreted as idle ravings, and that's more accurately what's going on here. This guy is just, he, it's the idle ravings of a man who has an evil spirit upon him, all right? And, and just think of a time when you've been completely, totally in the flesh, guys, and somebody cuts you off, okay? You're prophesying in the car in this, in this way. It's the idle ravings, you know? And so he prophesied inside his house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. And now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul, therefore Saul removed him, From his presence, and he made him captain over a thousand, and he went out and he came in before the people. So Saul pushes, puts David in a position where he's captain over a thousand people. We don't know what's going on with Saul's life here, but maybe he thinks, you know what, David's going to screw this up. I'll put him captain over a thousand men, because at this time, you know, to be a commander in the army, to have a position in the army, you had, to, you had to be at least 18 years of age. And David's probably not 18 here. You know, and so, you know, for him to put him in this position, he's thinking, I'll just put him there, and then what's going to happen is the, he's going to rub all these fighting men the wrong way because he's a punk kid. So, so they'll take care of my, you know, they'll start bad-mouthing him, and that'll put an end to this thing. So that's probably what he's doing here. But verse 14, we read, And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and he came in before them. Now, the point here is that David was tested and tried by foes. And we're going to see him tested and tried by King Saul through the end of this book, okay? And so for, for the remaining chapters of this book and for the next 10 years of David's life, it's going to be a constant conflict with King Saul. So there's a lot, of us, a lot for us to see in the testing and trial by this foe. Uh, but what I want to do here today, again, many lessons for us to learn, but I want to do here is I want to point out the first and foremost lesson in this trial. I'm just going to point that out, and we're going to close on that point, and we're going to pick up next week and go through all of the testing and trials, and we're going to have a, many weeks of seeing the, the growing and the work that God does through testing and trial. But the first and foremost lesson that we have to understand here in the testing by our foes, listen to this, it's very important, don't let me lose you, God is always at work. He's always at work. You gotta know that and you gotta just jot that down and you gotta hold on to that because you will be tested by foes and the first thing you gotta know going across that threshold, going through that door is that God is always at work. See, because here's the deal. As Christians, you and I, we will do this often where we, are, we, we, we come up against somebody who's oppositional. We have some sort of foe that we come up against. And what we will automatically do is we will say, oh, this is, this is spiritual warfare. This is the attack of the enemy. Now, here's what I want you to understand. It may well be spiritual warfare. It probably is spiritual warfare. It probably is the attack of the enemy. 
But what you need to understand, because a lot of Christians, they'll just chalk it up to that, and what do they do? They just, they just dismiss it. It's like, I don't have any sort of part in this. There's no lesson in this for me to learn. This is just a satanic attack. So sick them, God. Hey, wait a minute. Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. One of the most often quoted scriptures in, in the Bible, right? But you got to understand what that means. What that means is that God will use wicked men in your life because there's a work that he has to do in you. Okay? You can't just go, oh, that's the enemy, that's spiritual attack, and then just blow it off or just, a screen, just never take any sort of a long look in the mirror to go, why am I going through this, God? Because what you might find is God would tell you, yeah, I've allowed this foe in your life, and, and yes, here's all of this laundry list of this guy that he's doing wrong, but, but here's your laundry list, Jack. Check it out. And I've allowed this guy to come against you. I went through this myself. I had this, this huge conflict that I had. And it, and it took me a year to figure out that God was dealing with my pride. I mean, I had, you know, every sort of, you know, this is a satanic attack. It's an attack of the enemy. And these are all the things this guy has done wrong. And a year later, I woke up and went, oh, and God allowed that because I'm proud. And God wants to break me in my pride. See, so we have, to, we have to ask, why? Why does God allow foes in your life? And you've got to ask the question, and this I know for a fact right now that the Lord just got you. Some of you are sitting here and the, the arrow found its mark and you're like, ugh. You've got to ask the question, why? Why has God allowed this foe in your life? Why, why, why is he, he allowing this? And you put yourself in David's shoes. He's like, this is the thanks I get? I killed Goliath, I've been serving faithfully, I took all these cheesy jobs, right? And now, I got this opposition for, for the next 10 years. Peter said this, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And isn't that the way we feel when that happens? We're like, what is, uh, this is the strangest thing, why am I going through this? Because God's got a work to do in you. Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That word complete means literally to accomplish perfectly. Maybe today, right now, you're facing a foe. You got a mother-in-law that you can't please. You got a boss who has it in for you. You got a neighbor who hates you. You got a co-worker that sabotages you. Whatever it is. Hey, God's testing you. He's trying you. He's tempering you. Let him. 